for this afternoon's meditation to the fifth chapter of John. I think I shall begin reading with the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had now been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that hath made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed, and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. 
For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of God. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say that ye might be saved. I've read until verse 34. At times like this, especially with unexpected bad news, we don't always know what to do or where to turn, except to turn to God. The things that we have read together are timeless. They're the word of God. They are truth. They're also history. And the things that we've read recorded here, others have meditated on at other times as well. The story of the man at the pool of Bethesda is a common one. We have hymns about it in our Zion's harp. But I think it would be good for us to refocus our eyes on Jesus Christ, who he was. There were many that followed him because of the miracles he did, especially in the early days of his ministry. There were those that flocked to him because they had been fed. Bread and fish was provided for them in the wilderness in a miraculous way. There were those that sought him maybe for political advantage too, thinking that he could be used to further their ends. But God will not be manipulated. We cannot bend the Almighty to our will, no matter how good we think our will is. It's good that we remember this. 
in the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. And in the Old Testament, I think there was the understanding that as a, a man's thoughts were above the thoughts of a child, so God's thoughts were above the thoughts of men. And though that is true, I don't think that was everything. There was more to come. Because the revelation of God's thoughts came in the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Christ is, I think, almost too big even for our own minds. If, if, if Christ is too big for my mind, that he could be just a man in one sense, yet fully God, I mean, that's right at the very limits of my ability to, to understand. And yet I believe he was sent so that we would understand exactly that. So if that, if the Son is glorious in his, you know, as we sing in the, in the, in the, uh, him at Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. If that causes me to stumble and stretch, as it were, how much more God? How much greater is He? And if I'm ashamed at the love of Christ, how great His love is compared to my own miserly love. How much greater must be the love of the Father that sent his Son? These things are too wonderful for me, Scripture says. And when we consider what Jesus did, the kind of person he was, the love he had, do any of us really need to worry about tomorrow? Do we need to worry about our physical needs? Christ himself answered that for us. He said, look, if my father cares for the sparrows, won't he care for you? Won't he provide for your needs? Not one hair of your head will fall without him knowing. <laughs> I've got a lot of girls in my house. There's a lot of hair that falls. <laughs> And sometimes this is one of yours or this is one of yours. And I think of that sometimes. It's kind of comical. But I think about that and I think, why would God even say that? That he knows when a hair of our head falls. That seems so insignificant. Yet that's exactly the point. That we have a God who loves us, who is able to care for us in such minute detail. And when we combine these verses with what we read from Jeremiah, when he says, I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you. What might that mean? I can only think that it's plans down to the smallest little detail. What a comfort it is to know that we have such a Father in heaven. That, I believe, was the primary revelation of Jesus Christ to us. That God was not the unapproachable Yahweh, but was instead our Father, which art in heaven. And he even went as far to tell his disciples, he loves you. In his high priestly prayer in John, you can read that. He loves you, not just me, you. What a comfort that is. Yet some can't grasp that. 
They resist it, even as the Pharisees did here. They couldn't see past their rules and regulations, their own paradigm, their own narrow view of the world. It was not enough that a man who had been 38 years in a condition of infirmity, unable to rise, suddenly was walking around in front of them. All they could see was that someone had healed this man on the Sabbath day. How blind. How completely blind. You know, as I, I mentioned, I think, from the pulpit last week, I'm seeing more and more that salvation is less from our side, or from God's side, I should say, an active choice of ours. But we have the ability to resist. I was thinking about the, uh, the words of Stephen before the, the council in Jerusalem. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. We know we can claim nothing when it comes to salvation. We're bankrupt sinners before an almighty but loving God. Yet, the marvel is that as he gave Adam and Eve a will in the garden that they could use to either affirm their love for him or deny it, so too he's given each one of us a will. And we can resist. And if we reject Christ, the rejection is fully ours. God never damns somebody without their will being exercised. To me, that's also a great source of comfort because I can know that for the innocent and for those that have the, uh, are unable to decide, they do not need to fear the judgment of God. They have not resisted him because they did not know. They are safe, I believe, in the arms of Jesus. For those of you that did not have a chance to meet Adriana Demrovsky. I, I met her briefly at Brother Peter's house. She was a special needs child. I believe she had um, some form of epilepsy as well as some cognitive difficulties, and she was, she was simple. And now I believe she is with Jesus because even though she was not baptized in the baptismal waters, I do not think that she had the ability to reject the overtures of the gospel. And so we can take comfort in that for those that are not able to decide. But for those of us that do, for those of us to whom light has come, we need to decide if we love darkness rather than light. That is within our power. Jesus found the man afterwards in the temple and said, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Context is everything. 
You know, this man had been freed from being an invalid beside a pool for who knows how long. He had sat there by the pool. He had been 38 years unable to walk. But that worst thing that Jesus talked about was not with reference to a physical state. Jesus wasn't threatening him with a return to a life of invalidism. The worst thing with Christ is always the spiritual. The one that has had a devil cast out of him and replaces it with nothing else. Christ warns that that, that spirit that was cast out goes and gets seven other spirits worse than himself and re-enters the man and his last state is worse than the first. That's something to be afraid of. Christ himself also said, fear not them that have the power to kill the body, but fear him who after he has killed the body can cast the soul into hellfire. Yea, I say unto you, fear ye him. That is a valid fear. But that fear is only the beginning. That is, as the Bible says, the beginning of wisdom. And it's important that we approach God with the proper reverence. But once we do that, once we realize how great he is, or that sounds like we understand him, how, how little we are, maybe is a better way to phrase that, then that opens us up to new possibilities, new realities. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what, thi what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. When we understand that Christ was the Word of God made flesh, it makes total sense. Our words can never turn back around and, and contradict us. Our words proceed forth from us. So he was. Christ was, as it were, the shadow of God. Whatever God wanted him to do, the shadow followed. Right? You see the children play sometimes with their shadows, especially when the light's at the right angle, and they, they like to jump around on each other's shadows and do these kinds of things. And the shadow never disobeys. What, what the child does. So it was with Christ, so in tune with the Father, such a complete expression of who the Father was. He could say that, and he was not limiting himself. When he says the Son can do nothing of himself, that didn't mean he was powerless. He meant he never stepped outside of what God's will was. Oh, that we could all say that. I never do anything of myself. Whatever my Father tells me, that I do. That is a blessed state to be there. So often I have to repent and think that was not what Jesus would have done in that circumstance. That's not what he would have said. That's not how he would have reacted.
for what he seeth the Father do. If you always do what your Father asks you to do, where are your eyes? They must be only one place, on your Father. What he seeth the Father do. Christ was so intently watching the Father, he didn't have uh, any time or occasion to worry about what other people thought of him. He was simply looking to God. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For those that have their eyes fixed on God, he will continually reveal new things to you. He will show you more and more of his will. You will be more certain, I believe, with the decisions you make, the direction you go. Even to the point where, I think about the Apostle Paul, where it says he besought the Lord three times for this thorn in the flesh that he had. And he was so in tune with God that when God told him, no, my grace is sufficient for thee, he understood it. How many of us would say, we're just simply not praying hard enough. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I haven't done this. Maybe I need to. Paul simply dropped it after that point. He said, okay, God, I'm more interested in being in your will than being comfortable. If, that would, if this is what it means to be in your will, to have this thorn in the flesh, then I'm going to glory in it. I'm going to delight in this current state of incapacitation, of difficulty. I'm nowhere close <laughs> to that level of spirituality yet. I don't delight in my infirmities. They vex me. They bother me. The best I've been able to manage so far is to get along with them. But to delight in them, to glory in them, to glory in loss, to glory in difficulty, to glory when others maybe are speaking against you, slandering you, Paul said, I'm just glad that Christ is preached. I don't care if they're making fun of me while they're doing it or thinking to add to my bonds. I'm just so happy that Christ is being preached. No, our, our opinions of ourselves are often much, much higher than that, aren't they? If you're anything like me. I often take a rebuke or a correction as a personal attack. That person doesn't like me. Why are they like this? Don't they see what I've done here? Can't they appreciate this difficulty that I might have? Still carnal, aren't I? I admit it. I own that. One of the things I try to teach my boys is own your mistakes. Don't hide from them. Own your mistakes. If it's yours, if you made the error, admit it. You do yourself no favors by pretending that you're flawless. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, 
even so the, the son quickeneth whom he will. Again, this makes sense in, this, in, the, in the sense of the word of God made flesh. When God speaks, life happens. It says in the Psalms, his voice causes the hinds to calve on the hills. And everything in creation shouts glory. Everything except for man. The one creature with the will to resist him. Isn't that amazing? Nature can march in perfect harmony and perfect balance. And yet man has the ability to say no. But he loves you. If he didn't love you, he'd simply force you to step in line with the rest of nature. But he wants you to voluntarily return love to him. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Didn't Christ just finish saying that he didn't do anything except for what his Father said? Again, if we understand that he is the Word made flesh, we see how this works. Christ himself said, it's the word that's going to judge. It's the word that's going to judge. That's why it's important that we know the word. That's why it's important that we internalize it. The scripture says, if we know the truth, the truth shall set us free. So we need to know it. Ignorance is bondage. That all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. If you need proof of the Trinity, here's a proof text. The Father and the Son, both equal, co-eternal, as the old creed says. Co-equal in majesty. Both deserving of nothing less than worship. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Isn't that interesting, the way that Christ put that? Heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. You only see the Father through the Son, and you only find the Son through the Spirit. That's how God designed it. This is also why those Jewish leaders couldn't see him. Stephen himself said it. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. How can you see the Son then if you resist the Holy Ghost? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. As I get older, especially as I talk with those that are my age or older, about some that are no longer here. We talk about them in the past tense. But that's really incorrect. No one is really in the past tense. We all live unto him, Scripture tells us. And though they may have passed from this life, they're still very much alive. For the one that has come to this state, belief unto eternal life, death has been defanged. 
The grave has no more terror because it doesn't represent an unknown, but rather just simply a change of state. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, though we can mourn the passing of a loved one, in the very real sense, they, are, they have not left. They are simply with the Lord. Scripture refers to it as sleep, Abraham's bosom in another place. They are not gone. And so death need not hold any fear for the Christian. This is a really valuable lesson and a teaching, I think, even for our own time. So many are so fearful with this pandemic. Do you really fear death as a Christian? I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, you should not. What kind of a feeble faith crumples in the face of death when we have words like this? Re-examine your foundation, brother and sister, if you're fearful about the loss of your life. There are far worse things than that. Christ warned us about those things. Be careful. Be careful that you not be found in unbelief because the unbelieving shall not inherit eternal life. And that is way more terrifying to me than the cessation of this physical body. They did not enter in because of unbelief. Those are words that should make any Christian think twice. Our spiritual forefathers had a heartier faith when they could look the judge in the eye and say they would rather suffer with Christ. For some of you young people, read the short booklet published by the publishing company called The Nazarenes in Yugoslavia. It's a series of first-hand accounts, court documents, chronicling their faith. It puts me to shame. But it is a good source of comfort and encouragement also for me when I consider my own lot in life and how good I have it. I have nothing to complain about. My faith needs to be founded upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. The blessedness of that alone, that we've passed from condemnation for our, 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 our crimes we committed and fully deserve punishment for. We've passed from death unto life. Our sentence has been taken. A sentence of eternal torment could only be borne by someone who was eternal. And so Christ hung between heaven and earth for six hours, suffering an eternity of pain for our sake.
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Christ wasn't talking about the physically dead. He was talking about the spiritually dead. To be awakened from that death to life is to be made alive in a way where you can never, uh, death can never touch you again. This is the thing that Christ came to show. You know, when he raised someone from the dead or when he healed someone's crippled body, that was only a band-aid, a temporary fix. Death was coming for that physical body again. Lazarus, though raised from the dead, died again and he didn't rise a second time. Not here below. That was only an illustration, as it were, pointing at something much more important, that the Son came to bring life, life from the dead. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and so is the Son given unto us that we can have life in ourselves, that we are become new creatures in him. This new life that we can enjoy in Christ Jesus is not something that anyone can take from us. Though we may pray for our sister Monica and wish for her healing, no one can take her life from her. That life has been given by God. Eternal life. And though the outer man may perish, as all of us will one day, the inner man springs up into life eternal. And that, no one, no one can separate us from the source of life itself. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a good question for all of us because the answer is so clear that it should make us leap for joy. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. May the Lord add to whatever was lacking what was said. Would our brother please select a hymn that comes with being made a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the sense of some special ability that's automatically conferred because we step up into this wooden tub. We only have what everyone in the pews has the Word of God, prayer, and the Spirit of God. But that's enough. That is enough. Those things alone are able to allow us to weather the worst storms that this world can throw at us. I know that not from personal experience. I know it from the Word of God and from the experience of others who have gone through much worse than I have. And so I can say with confidence, based on the word of God, though he slay me, 
yet will I trust him. Job penned those words thousands of years ago. Job is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible, perhaps 4,000 years old. But the truth is the same. Because the God who is truth is the same. And how much more do we know and understand than Job did at that time? Job sees things much clearer than we do now. We don't need to worry about him. But we have been given so much more light. We need to walk, even as the scripture says, as children of light. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. May we continue to lift our sister Monica and her family up in prayer to our Heavenly Father. And may he dismiss us with his blessing and with his peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.